walking. In the last episode, I discussed uncertainty in live poker. It's a slow game in which no records are kept, and you don't get to see everyone's cards. And the most profitable plays in live poker can be hard to identify due to the presence of unskilled recreational players. So it's hard to tell exactly how good your opponents are, especially if they're aggressive and generally seem thoughtful. These conditions create opportunities for what I called Pied Pipers, players who don't seem very good but make good money as coaches. These players can make you question your understanding of what's going on at the table. They seem to be making lots of mistakes, and yet they're aggressive and present themselves, or are presented by others, as big winners. And you think, that play that guy just made can't be right. Or are there times when it could be right? Is this one of those times and I just don't understand it? Do I actually understand this game as well as I think I do? Things can become clearer once you collect more data, but you never get to see the whole picture. And you have to accept that however much you study, however good you get, you'll never have an unobstructed view of what's actually going on. It's weird and it's fascinating. There isn't a poker player who encapsulates all this better than the longtime cash game pro Matt Berkey. The poker gods have given us dozens and dozens of hours of Berkey playing poker on camera, often making enormous mistakes. Not just losing hands or folding to bluffs or paying off value bets. That's all just part of poker, but making extremely costly plays that, upon examination, make very little sense. We also have dozens of hours of video of Matt Berkey talking about poker, thanks largely to his work for his training site, Solve for Why. Solve for Why hosts a library of videos that are currently accessible for the price of $9.99 a month, after Berkey reduced the price from $125 a month a few months ago. And yes, that's right, he reduced the price by a factor of 12. Solve for Why also runs what he calls academies, poker training camps. In the past, Solve for Why has charged $3,500 for their three-day Advanced Academy, $4,500 for their five-day MTT, that is, Tournament Academy, and $6,000 for their five-day Elite Academy. Their website notes that participation in the Advanced Academy comes with admission to a Slack channel that includes over 100 former participants. I reached out to Berkey to ask about his plans for future academies post-COVID. He wrote back that he planned to host three-day $3,500 academies again in early 2021. Should COVID continue to be a problem then, he wrote, he'll host a virtual homeschool program that would include three hours of instruction each day for a month at the cost of $2,000. Earlier this year, Berkey, using characteristically Berkeyish language, invited the poker community to look into his work for Solve for Why. He said, I think the training industry as a whole, the poker media industry, all these kind of organically developed corners of the poker market that a lot of the, I guess, graduated players are kind of heading the steam or the charge with, I think they all stand to be better served with peer review, end quote. Now, I'm just a guy who plays 510. My resume doesn't compare to Berkey's, and it never will. I'll never have my own training site. I'll probably never play a super high roller. I'm not his peer. But I started reviewing a few months ago, and here's what I found. It's the first season of Solve Y TV's web-based show Poker Out Loud, in which six players sit around a live 510 No Limit Hold'em table wearing noise-canceling headphones. When it's a player's turn to act, he turns off his music and tells viewers what he's about to do and why. Poker Out Loud is a Solve for Y product, but it also advertises its library of poker training videos. Highlights from the first season appeared on YouTube in late 2019, although it seems they were introduced on Solve for Y's website sometime around August 2018, and a note on the first episode says the first season was recorded in March 2018. The full series is available behind Solve for Y's paywall. Nick Howard has Queen 9 offsuit in the hijack seat and raises to $35 a losing play in most lineups. Jack Glasky has ace-king with the king of diamonds next to act and re-raises to $110, a standard play. Berkey has 10-7 of diamonds in the big blind and should have a very easy fold. As he discusses his decision, he notes that his hand does seem to be a fold, but adds that he'd normally like to defend this hand, presumably to a single raise, in the big blind 
and that Lasky seems to be targeting Howard for raising too many hands. So Berkey puts in a four bet to $335. Howard folds and Lasky calls Berkey's raise, again, a fine play. Berkey says, quote, so we pretty much got the desired result, end quote, though I don't know why he'd want to play a four bet pot out of position with 10-7 suited. The flop comes ace, five, deuce, with the ace and deuce of diamonds, giving Berkey a flush draw with his 10-7 of diamonds, and Lasky top pair with ace-king. Berkey suggests that Lasky would often five bet preflop with many hands that have an ace in them. Perhaps he would with some, but Lasky does have an ace this time, and it seems likely to me that he would at least have many combos of ace-king, ace-queen suited, and ace-jack suited that he would just call with given the heavy preflop action. Lasky could also have pocket aces some of the time. Berkey bets $425 into a pot of $715, a big bet in a four-bet pot. Lasky calls. Now there's $1,560 in the pot, and the turn is the ace of hearts, creating a backdoor heart draw and giving Lasky three aces with a king kicker. Berkey says, this is rather interesting. I'm putting him mainly on ace-jack, ace-10, end quote. Hands, in other words, that have three aces in them and that won't fold. Berkey suggests Lasky could have ace-5 or ace-deuce, but says he dismisses those hands somewhat given that two aces are present. Berkey suggests Lasky could also have king-queen of hearts, then speculates that Lasky could have a diamond draw. But given Berkey's cards, his preflop four bet, and his large flop bet, which would cause Lasky to fold many hands that aren't strong once an ace hits, it seems likely that a huge portion of Lasky's range now has three aces. Again, mostly ace-king, ace-queen suited, and ace-jack suited. In fact, when Berkey bets this large on the flop, Lasky can reasonably consider folding pairs like pocket jacks or even pocket queens, especially when they don't have a diamond. Berkey has forced Lasky to have an extremely strong range with his play both preflop and on the flop. Nonetheless, Berkey says, I actually really like going for a 2x pot shove here, a 1.5x pot shove here. Sure, he's just going to have some ace to call me, but I'm already so pulled given my actions so far that I think when I jam, he can't really expect to find too many of my merged hands like kings or queens or anything to that nature, end quote. If Lasky will call with all hands that have an ace in them, which seems likely, it doesn't matter whether Berkey's overbet jam will cause Lasky to think Berkey doesn't have kings or queens, which are, of course, the next best hands after all the ones with aces in them. Berkey shoves for $2,770. Lasky quickly calls. Berkey's flush misses on the river, and Lasky scoops a pot of $7,100. There's no other way to say it. Berkey's plays preflop and on the turn are horrible, massive mistakes. When you play poker, it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, playing to avoid mistakes can sometimes itself be a mistake, in that an abundance of caution can cause you to miss more creative, more interesting possibilities. It's also very hard to play perfectly, or anywhere close to it, when there are cameras on you. So we should be forgiving of players willing to make bold mistakes on camera. But still, these are horrendous mistakes for hundreds of big blinds, and the player who made them is clearly an intelligent person who's thinking deeply about the game. So. What happened in this hand? Not every decision in poker needs to be complicated. In fact, a simple strategy might save piles of money compared to a complicated one that isn't firmly rooted in reality. As Berkey's colleague Howard explains in one of Solve for Wise podcasts, quote, if you take a big group of high stakes winners, I think far and away the trait you would find in the way they speak about the game is that they actually understand that it is more the consistent application of simple technique that generates win rate, more than a lot of abstract nuances that probably are worth less and don't occur as frequently as just the basic stuff." End quote. That's an astute point, and one that Berkey often fails to apply. He's constantly thinking, but he's thinking about unfavorable situations that he could avoid by simplifying things. Before the flop on this hand, the hijack raises and the cutoff re-raises. Berkey has 10-7 suited in the big blind. His hand isn't very good by any standard. He's against two opponents who could literally have any strong hand, and he doesn't even have a card like an ace that would reduce the possibility of either of them having those strong hands. There isn't a preflop chart in the world that would have 10-7 suited as anything close to a 4-bet here. Now, live poker isn't played by robots, so there are often reasons to deviate from the charts. 
And Berkey does say that one factor in his decision to forebet is that Lasky seems to be three-betting Howard frequently. But even if Lasky has a wider three-bet range than usual here, he still has all the strongest hands in that range, and 10-7 suited is unlikely to be ahead. Even if he's right that Lasky is sticking his neck out here, Berkey is sticking his out even further. After four-betting preflop and then betting large on the ace-five-deuce flop, Berkey correctly notes that he's pulled, that he's playing the hand as if it's very strong or very weak, rather than moderately strong. But it doesn't seem to bother him that Lasky's range after calling a four-bet and then a big flop bet is also quite strong. Then, while fumbling through potential hands that can fold to an all-in once the ace pairs on the turn, Berkey considers that Lasky could have diamond combos, but fails to note that his four-bet preflop would have driven out many of them, and that Berkey being able to account for the ace, ten, and seven of diamonds, one of which is on the board and two of which are in his hand, dramatically reduces the likelihood of Lasky having diamonds. Lasky mostly has strong hands here that won't fold, especially to a player capable of turning up with ten-seven of diamonds. Then, after this series of mistakes, Berkey says, I'm going to give the fake look back as if I'm checking to see if my ace possesses a heart, and then I'm going to be all in, end quote. Which is perfect, because this fake look back, reverse tell, is likely to matter so much less to Lasky than the fact that he simply has trip aces a ton of the time. You can't say Berkey doesn't pay attention to details, only, perhaps, that he doesn't pay attention to the right ones. The next hand is from a more recent Poker Out Loud 510 session in which Berkey faces off against his students. One of them, Chris Kambalinka, raises to $30 in the hijack seat with Jack-9 of hearts. Berkey is next to act and raises to $125, a large sizing, but a defensible one with effective stacks of about $2,800, with king-queen offsuit with the queen of hearts. Kambalinka calls. Both the re-raise and the call are a bit loose, but seem fine. There's 265 in the pot, and the flop comes queen, 10, 5, rainbow, with the 5 of hearts. So, Kamvalinka has an open-ended straight draw and a backdoor flush draw with his jack-9 of hearts, and Berkey has top pair with the king kicker. Kamvalinka checks, Berkey bets 135, about half the pot, and Kamvalinka calls. The turn is the 8 of hearts, creating a backdoor heart draw. So the board is now queen, 10, 5, 8, with the 5 and 8 of hearts. This is the best card in the deck for Kambalinka, who now has the nut straight with a redraw to a flush. He checks, and now Berkey looks at his hand again to see if he has the Queen of Hearts. He does and is quite excited about this. He then lists hands Kambalinka could have before betting $550 into a pot of $535. This is a very big bet for a medium strength hand. Berkey correctly notes that Kambalinka can have a lot of good hands here, and my guess is that number is even higher than it's supposed to be theoretically, given how frequently Berkey seems to blast off with huge turn and river bets. I wouldn't be in any hurry to raise a strong hand on the flop if I were in Kambalinka's shoes. Berkey does say that he's betting very large here with the intention of checking on the river unless the river is a queen, and that does make some sense to me. He bets big with a made hand on the turn against a range that includes a variety of draws, planning to freeze the action on the river. Kavalinka doesn't cooperate, however, and moves all in with his nut straight for about 2500 total, which seems like the right play on a board this wet. Berkey almost immediately says, so I think I obviously have a call here. That goes without saying. And my immediate reaction upon watching this was, wow, I mean, this is absolutely not an obvious call, and in fact is closer to being an obvious fold. I later confirmed this with a solver, which, at least under the assumptions I used, had Berkey folding with this combo almost always. Berkey could have a number of stronger hands in his range, including Jack-9 suited, which I assume he would 3-bet preflop, although I'm not sure he should, pocket queens, queen-10 suited, and pocket 10s. He could also call with hands like ace-queen of hearts and king-queen of hearts that block some of Kambalinka's potential bluffs, but that have so much equity it doesn't matter. King-queen offsuit is too weak, and the fact that Berkey has the queen of hearts, as he'd noted with excitement just moments before, actually makes this a bad combo to call with, since one of the hands Kambalinka might shove that Berkey beats is Queen-Jack of Hearts. Berkey says, just due to the mistake propensity of this board, where he has a lot of what appear to be equitable hands, such as Jack-10 of Hearts, 10-9 of Hearts, Ace-Jack of Hearts, all of those types of holdings, when I block the Queen of Hearts, I just think I have an absolute auto-call, 
end quote. Having the queen of hearts seems like a weird thing to focus on this much. If you're Berkey, having two hearts seems mostly good, since you'll have equity against a variety of good hands Kambalenka can have. But having one heart, which blocks Kambalenka's pair plus draws without creating more equity for your own hand, seems mostly bad. Berkey does block ace-queen of hearts and queen-ten of hearts, as he notes, but his hand still just doesn't have enough equity to call. Anyway, he does call and doubles up Kambalenka for another mistake costing hundreds of big blinds. Berkey has said that he doesn't see poker out loud as a showcase for outstanding poker play. But he's also said that he excels when he's allowed to talk through his decisions and that, quote, I play lights out on poker out loud, end quote. I chose these two hands to review because they're interesting, but they aren't even some of the more egregious mistakes we see Berkey make on this show. You can view a Solve for Why curated top 10 hands from the first season of Poker Out Loud as a three-part series on YouTube. But these videos are poker training, and to see the whole series, you'll have to subscribe to a poker training site. In one hand, Christian Soto limps for $10 with 7-5 offsuit under the gun, and Berkey raises to 200 with ace-jack offsuit from the cutoff, so a raise to 20 big blinds over a single limp. Zach Resnick 3-bets to $480 from the button with ace-3 offsuit, and you can see what he's thinking, but this seems unnecessary with the hand this week. It folds to Berkey, who calls. The flop comes 8-8-7 with two hearts. Berkey checks, Resnick bets $575, and Berkey goes all in for about $2,200 effective. Resnick, of course, has nothing in folds, but this is probably a shove that Resnick would play almost perfectly against, almost always calling when he's ahead and folding when he's behind. If you feel inclined to give Berkey credit for winning this pot, keep in mind that the other players in this hand are, or were, Solve for Why affiliated coaches as well. If I saw even one hand like this in a 5-10 game I was in, I'd immediately assume the game was unbelievable and I'd be giddy. So you see things like this on training videos and you start to question your sense of reality. Could Berkey have somehow actually invented some effective way of playing that involves making big mistakes all the time to goad his opponents into making even bigger ones? Is there much I can learn from this? Would videos like this somehow be effective teaching tools for less experienced players? I was pretty sure I knew the answers to these questions, but I couldn't be absolutely sure. Now, we all make mistakes. Personally, I'm too tight in certain situations, which means a lot of my mistakes aren't even entertaining, as Berkey's often are. I've also made some very silly-looking moves against recreational players, so far be it from me. But I can't recall the last time I made a 300 big blind mistake as honkingly bad as these against a competent opponent. Generally, smart poker players don't call out other poker players for making mistakes. If a player makes lots of mistakes, we want him to play, we want him to continue to make mistakes, and we don't want to tell him he's made them. Calling him out isn't nice, and it's bad for business. But today we're going to make an exception, because Berkey and Solve for Why are taking who knows how much money out of the poker market selling tuition to his academies. He's charging players many thousands of dollars for a few days of access to his purported expertise. If someone makes bad plays, or makes bad plays on camera, or makes many, many bad plays on camera, we should mostly just appreciate them. But if they start charging other poker players thousands of dollars for lessons, that seems like another story. I became aware of Berkey several years ago when he appeared on Poker Night in America, sitting in a 100, 200, 400 game with $100,000. He was running well, and based on the highlights I saw, playing pretty well too, winning a quarter million dollar pot off billionaire Bill Perkins by flopping a set of eights, raising the flop, and overbetting the turn. Perkins shoved with top pair, and Berkey had him drawing dead. Berkey began appearing on many televised high stakes games Poker Night in America, Poker After Dark, Live at the Bike. Also around this time, a series called Dead Money on Poker Go documented Berkey's preparations to play in the $300,000 Super High Roller Bowl. In this series, we see him jogging in Pittsburgh and discussing his lower class upbringing and his mother's history of addiction. We see him arrive at the tournament and become the chip leader, and we hear a series of comments from the announcers about Berkey's collection of bow ties. Until then, I hadn't thought much about Berkey. I figured he was a top pro, given the stakes he played. But the series, which was produced by Solve for Why, Berkey's own company, 
brands Berkey as a player who other top players think isn't any good. The suggestion there, and in many of the stories Berkey and Solfer Y tell about Berkey, is that he might seem like a fish, but if you look a bit deeper, you'll see that he knows things the rest of poker's elite doesn't. In Dead Money, we hear about Berkey from two of those elite players, Brian Rast and Tom Marchese. Daniel Negreanu is there too, despite admitting to not knowing much about Berkey, but, you know, there was a camera present. As Rast puts it, quote, You know, Matt's a good poker player, but he plays lots of big pots, plays a little bit wild. You feel like you could beat him for a big number, end quote. We later learn that Berkey is $2.2 million in makeup, meaning that he has to make back that amount for his backers before he can start making money again. Here's Rast again. My opinion, being relatively honest, is that maybe he thought there was a method, that is, a method to his madness. But he was definitely doing some things that were bad. Bad enough that maybe even guys who weren't that good were like, damn, that was really bad. Or as Marchese puts it, at some point, a really loose player is going to give somebody else too much action. The third episode of the series begins with Soto asking Berkey, why do the elites think you're a bad poker player? Berkey replies, next question. Soto tries again. Why do so many people have such a polarizing image of your game? I'm designed that way, Berkey says. Does that bother you? Asks Soto. No, Berkey answers emphatically. But it's clear that not only do many top poker players believe Berkey isn't very good, their disapproval does bother him. The vast accumulation of poker content centered around Berkey is a rabbit hole of weird, awkward verbiage, personal beefs, and wandering philosophical defenses of his approach to the game. Berkey's recent podcasts for Solve for Why cover a number of concepts that will be unfamiliar to even the most experienced poker players and that are never fully explained. Performance cycles, a natural fluidity to thresholds, aggressive formation. Frequently, they'll appear once and are never addressed again. It can be hard to tell when Berkey and company are discussing concepts that are unique to their coaching style and when they're just misusing words or using complicated sounding phrases when they could use simple ones. Berkey uses phrases like through turn and river distributions when what I think he means is on turns and rivers or defending through the calling tree. Some of this stuff also sounds a lot like vapid corporate speak. There's a lot of talk of paradigms, of disruption. It's possible Berkey just thinks about relatively simple things in complicated ways. And I've known brilliant people who sound like they're creating terms and concepts on the fly. But when coupled with all the dead money branding, Berkey's convoluted verbiage strikes me as defensive, as a moat to separate him from criticism. A guy who sounds like he's thought through the concept of turn and river distributions certainly seems like a brighter poker mind than the guy who just says turns and rivers. Couple that with the uncertainty surrounding live poker I discussed in the last episode, the fact that once a player crosses a low threshold of competence, it can start to seem plausible that she might be a crusher, even if her plays are often unorthodox, and suddenly what kind of player Berkey is can start to feel unclear. You consider all the places Berkey has been. He really has played huge cash games for years. He really did cash the Super High Roller Bowl. He really does have $4.1 million in lifetime tournament earnings, despite primarily playing cash games. But then you remember, this guy 4-bets into two uncapped ranges with 10-7 suited and then torches his stack on an ace-high board for no reason. He calls off in a massive pot with top pair against the nuts. He tells us why he's doing these things, and his explanations are so incoherent and so unlike the way most good poker players think that it's hard to believe a good player would even be able to say them without writing them down first. And then he says that he plays lights out in the series in which he does these things. It doesn't add up, and in poker, sometimes these things don't. Sometimes a player's accomplishments and his observed ability diverge because he's doing something that's unorthodox, but nonetheless effective. But sometimes they diverge because he's independently wealthy, or got transcendently lucky, or has gullible backers. It happens a lot. Perhaps the least skilled opponent I ever played against is a guy who has several million dollars in live tournament winnings. Lists of accomplishments only tell us so much. Berkey and his colleagues have discussed the concept behind Solve for Why in great detail. We're not trying to teach poker strategy per se, Berkey says. 
We're trying to teach people a better framework of thinking so that they can look at this holistically and put themselves in a position to be versatile whenever the pattern does change or disrupt, or the environment changes or disrupts, end quote. Or, as Howard puts it later in the same podcast episode, if we could only teach people how to think rationally, I'd think, we have succeeded at whatever we're trying to do, end quote. Berkey replies, that's literally my mission in starting this company, and it goes far beyond poker. Poker is just like the best training ground, in my opinion, end quote. The discussions of poker on SulfurWise podcast frequently bleed into self-help. Later in that same episode, Berkey and Howard congratulate themselves on living a disciplined life. Berkey says, The common clapback to a disciplined life is, Why aren't you embracing failure more, like the rest of us? Why aren't you looking to fail? Why aren't you looking to eat poorly and just chalk it up to being human? Berkey imagines his interlocutor asking him why he doesn't go on vacation, saying, You, meaning Berkey, have all these means available to you and I don't, and if I did, I would go do all these things. Howard responds, Most people who go on vacation are in a complete state of self-avoidance and are actually just looking to take that next picture, in a complete trance, just so they can say they have a fucking picture of the Empire State Building. Berkey replies, I hate sightseeing more than anything else on Earth, man. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I was underwhelmed. Not because the Grand Canyon itself is underwhelming, but because, like, I'm in the middle of the fucking desert staring at a canyon. On a different episode, Soto and Berkey bemoan the criticism Berkey had recently received from a viewer of one of his recent live streams. Soto and Berkey compare Berkey in the process to top medical experts and business leaders. Soto says, Let's say we are watching another person that's an expert in their field. We're just like randoms that are constantly poking holes in what he's saying. Does that get you frustrated? Do you think, like, Peter Thiel or something gets this? Berkey doesn't seem phased by the suggestion that he's an expert in the quote-unquote field of poker, or the comparison to Peter Thiel, which Soto clearly intends to be a high compliment. Instead, he responds, No, I mean yes, but I would assume, and maybe I'm just projecting, I would assume his frustrations are lesser. The reason is because nothing in the medical field or the body optimization field is simple. People accept right away that there's a massive barrier to entry there, and that you have to really know your shit to even begin. In poker, anybody can sign up and play, and anybody can win at any given time, reinforcing the fact that they quote-unquote know what they're doing or are talking about. Now, give them a little vernacular from an article or a book or a training video, and suddenly they put themselves on the same level as those who are considered to be not just professionals, but potentially like experts in the field. End quote. So there you have it. Berkey, in his account, is so deeply disciplined that, unlike those who embrace failure, he has no interest in going on vacation, even though, as he's quick to point out, he has plenty of money to do so. And the low barrier of entry to poker and the variants involved prevent his commenters from seeing that he's an expert in the field, a leader, a Peter Thiel. Behind its paywall, Sulphur Y mostly just sells poker advice. You can find some good stuff if you understand what you're looking at. For example, I enjoyed Matt Hunt's series on tournament exploits. Hunt uses solvers to show how one might be able to make more money in tournaments by finding theoretically sound lines that most tournament players aren't taking and adjusting our strategy in response. He's clear throughout, his use of solvers is clever, and his assessments of player pull tendencies in tournaments seems right to me. Much of the rest of SulfurWise content doesn't meet that standard, however, and perhaps the biggest problem with it, even bigger than the fact that much of the advice is bad, is that it's hard to apply because it doesn't seem to proceed from any obvious set of first principles. This isn't to say that Solve Y has nothing to say about such principles. Hunt's Academy Primer course deals with core topics in a cogent way. Even that is mostly theoretical rather than practical, though, and my guess is that it will be hard for many viewers to apply correctly, especially when much of the site's content doesn't seem to be built on a solid foundation. For example, let's take a series of videos called Matt Berkey Exploitative Matrix. The first of these videos centers around a PowerPoint slide titled Assumption Protocols Analytical, about how we should generally approach no limit hold'em. It's confusingly organized and a bit repetitive, but the gist is that we should consider what Berkey calls hand protocols, including position, whether we raised pre-flop, the texture of the flop, and how various turn cards will change both our hand strength and the strength of our range. 
Then we proceed to sizing protocols, another set of considerations about how we might size our bets based on whether we're betting for value, whether the flop is better for us or for our opponents, and how the hand might play out in future rounds of betting. Finally, we move on to betting frequency, where we have yet another set of considerations. Once we have all that figured out, we proceed to a second slide called Assumption Protocols Calibration, which contains almost 100 words, most of them listing rather generic bits of advice about how we should deviate from our baseline strategy, again, that's the stuff on the first slide, to exploit our opponents. So okay, but let's go back to that first slide. Even with all the repetition removed, that first slide contains a ton of really important concepts. In fact, how successful you'll be in No Limit Hold'em will depend in large part on how well you understand the importance of position and how you respond to various flop textures. But it isn't immediately obvious at all how to master those things, and Berkey doesn't tell us how. However good you are at high-level exploitative strategy, it's hard to win if you're making basic mistakes. In fact, it's hard to tell what good exploits even are if we don't have a good baseline strategy, as Berkey himself comes close to saying in the video. For example, when is 10-7 suited a preflop 4-bet in a deep-stacked 6-max cash game? How bad would your opponents have to be for that to be a good exploit? And what kind of bad would they have to be? And does Berkey believe his opponents, Nick Howard and Jack Lasky, both pros who appear in videos for Salt for Why, are that kind of bad? My guess is that he doesn't actually think that, and that this supposedly exploitative play of 4-betting 10-7 suited doesn't proceed from any assumption protocols analytical at all. In another recent Poker Out Loud video, Berkey opens ace-nine offsuit to four big blinds from the hijack seat and then calls the cutoffs re-raise. Your opponents would have to be pretty bad for these plays, and especially the 3-bet call, to be good exploits. I don't have access to Berkey's mind, but it certainly looks like his proselytizing for exploitative play is an excuse for sloppy fundamentals, rather than part of a coherent approach to poker. So let's look at one of the hands Berkey discusses in the Exploitative Matrix series. In the fourth video, Berkey uses the software program PioSolver, which essentially gives you game theory solutions for poker hands between two players based on betting, raising, and sizing options you input to analyze a 5-10 hand he played on Poker Out Loud against Andrew Lichtenberger, a high-stakes pro who is respected throughout the poker community. Lichtenberger, with a stack of around $2,800, has queen-jack offsuit on the button and raises to 35. Berkey has king-nine of clubs in the small blind and re-raises to 150. The action folds back to Lichtenberger, who calls. Lichtenberger's call is a little bit light, but not wildly so. The flop comes ace, 10, 10, rainbow with the 10 of clubs, and Berkey checks his king nine of clubs. Now, as Berkey points out, Piosolver thinks he should bet with about 80% of his range here. Berkey is the only player of the two who has pocket aces, and he also has a ton of pairs of aces, plus enough tens in his range that Lichtenberger can't raise without consequence. While Lichtenberger has plenty of trip 10s in his own range, he also has many more hands than Berkey that miss this flop completely, such as lower pairs and suited connectors, that will be in a tough spot if Berkey bets using a small sizing. So that's what PioSolver recommends most of the time. Now there's nothing wrong with checking a hand as weak as King-9 on Ace-10-10 in order to fold it, but that isn't what Berkey is thinking here. Instead, he checks, and Lichtenberger, with his queen-jack, bets $225 into a pot of 310, about three-quarters of the pot. According to PioSolver, Lichtenberger is supposed to bet infrequently here, but when he does, he's supposed to use a large size, since he's basically saying, I have a 10. Many of his pairs of aces will have worse kickers than aces in Berkey's range, and there isn't much incentive to bet them on a board like Ace-10-10 Rainbow, where the turn card is unlikely to dramatically change things. So Lichtenberger should mostly bet when he has a 10, and balance with a handful of bluffs. Queen-Jack is one of the hands Piosolver likes to bluff with. It doesn't have much showdown value on its own, it can improve to a straight, and it blocks some of the best hands Berkey is supposed to play this way some of the time, like Ace-Queen and Ace-Jack. Now, Berkey suggests that he would have checked 100% of the time on the flop, with all of his hands. A sign that says exploits appears in the top right corner of the screen, and Berkey shows that if Berkey is always checking on the flop, Lichtenberger's bluff with Queen-Jack shifts from winning money to losing. But of course, Berkey checking this flop 100% of the time would only be an exploit if he knew Lichtenberger had Queen-Jack, or if he knew Lichtenberger would bet this spot too often or with too large of a size. But there's no evidence that he would. 
the hand Lichtenberger bluffed with was one of Piosolver's most frequent bluffs. So if Berkey was planning to always check the flop, that isn't an exploit. It's just inaccurate poker. And though it might make Lichtenberger's flop bluff with Queen Jack unprofitable, it makes his life easier when he has a hand like pocket eights that now gets to check back. Berkey's check also gives Lichtenberger's many weak aces a cheap route to showdown. So after Lichtenberger bets, Berkey check raises to $875, and Lichtenberger has to fold. Berkey suggests a couple times that he thinks Lichtenberger is betting too much after Berkey checks, but again, there's no evidence that this is true. In fact, Berkey repeatedly refers to the possibility that Lichtenberger is betting a lot of his pair's faces using the sizing he chose, which I highly doubt is true, since Lichtenberger is a great player, and betting a hand like ace-5 using a large sizing makes no sense. So, my guess is that Lichtenberger is just going to have a 10 here a lot, and he'll face this large check raise from Berkey that essentially says, screw you, you don't have a 10. And when Lichtenberger does have a 10, this is a dream scenario for him. So, Berkey isn't exploiting Lichtenberger, he's just making a weird play, and that weird play happens to have worked. His check raise is creative, it's hard to play against, but it isn't more profitable against Lichtenberger than just following the solver. Berkey's flop raise allows much of Lichtenberger's range to make a ton of money. If I run my pile solver simulation of the hand again, without giving Berkey the option to bet flop, basically baking in his strategy of checking 100% of the time, pile solver shows that he loses expected value. But let's say that I'm wrong, and Berkey is right about a lot of this stuff somehow, that he somehow found a great exploit against a world-class player and it worked. Even if what Berkey were doing in this hand were correct, it would be impossible to apply to other poker situations without a bunch of additional knowledge. Also, the most profitable exploits that exist in poker will be in hands against recreational players, not top pros. So, if the goal here is to learn about exploits, why choose a hand against an excellent player? What's the lesson here? What are patrons of a training site supposed to learn? In the second video in the Exploitative Matrix series, Berkey uses Piosolver to analyze another hand from Poker Out Loud, this one against Soto. They're playing 510, about $3,000 deep. Berkey has Queen 10 with the Queen of Diamonds on the button and raises big to $40. Soto has Jack 10 with the 10 of Diamonds in the big blind and calls. The flop comes 984 with the 9 and 8 of Diamonds. Soto checks, and Berkey bets $50 with his overcards and gutshot. Soto raises to $175 with his overcards and open-ender. Berkey calls. The turn is an offsuit 4, for a board of 9, 8, 4, 4 with 2 diamonds. This is one of the worst cards in the deck for Soto, so he wisely checks. Berkey, with his queen 10, bets $250. Soto should probably fold here, but he calls. The river is an offsuit jack, giving Berkey a straight and Soto top pair. Soto checks, and Berkey moves all in for over $2,500 into a pot of 935, about two and a half times the pot. Soto calls. Berkey uses his Piosolver results to discuss how the hand should be played. Now, Piosolver is a tricky program, and in a complex hand, you have to choose what options to include and what not to include especially with bet sizes. You can bet whatever you want in No Limit Hold'em, but Piosolver can't simulate complex hands with every possible bet size. So you want to be precise, but you can't be too precise. If, for example, you give the program the option to bet 30% on the flop, and it turns out that 35 would be slightly better for most of a player's range, there will be subtle differences in suggested strategy and expected value that will impact the rest of the hand, but you can probably live with that because the effects for such a small difference in bet size will be small. But if 35% would be an ideal sizing, and you only gave the program the option to bet 100%, or you didn't give it the option to bet at all, those are big problems that can mislead you not only about that particular sizing decision, but about other decisions in the hand as well. So you have to be careful with the program. Sometimes you have to run several simulations of a hand to learn about how to play it, perhaps discarding sizings that Piosulfur doesn't prefer and replacing them with new ones that get closer to what's ideal. So in the training video, Berkey shows us the Piosulfur inputs he used. 
Now, you can nitpick someone's solver setup by saying, for example, that a player could get just a little closer to optimal by betting 35% of the flop instead of 30. And if those were the kinds of quote-unquote problems with what Berkey was doing, I wouldn't criticize him for it. There are several problems with Berkey's inputs for this hand, some more significant than others. First, on the flop, Berkey gives himself two bet sizes and Soto two raise sizes, but he clicks don't three bet for himself. If he's playing a strategy where he doesn't three bet flops, and there are situations where good players will do this, he doesn't say so. The solver will use flop three bets if you let it, which makes sense to me, because for example, you want to be able to get in as much money as possible if you have top set against a lower set 300 blinds deep. Second, Berkey's sim only allows Soto to raise a whopping 200% of the pot or to go all in on the turn after Berkey bets. This means that when Berkey bets $250 into 435 and Soto wants to raise, he effectively only has the option to raise all in for over $2,500 because PioSolver rounds bets that are close to all in up to all in anyway. Most players would consider raising to a smaller size if they wanted to raise. If we run sims where Soto can raise to, say, $700 or $800, those are the options the solver typically prefers. Third, Berkey only gives Soto the option to bet 25%, 50%, or all-in on the river. The absence of more standard river sizing doesn't turn out to be an issue in the actual hand. Berkey is the aggressor on the turn, and Soto is out of position, so Piosolver will never have Soto bet. But Berkey's setup probably doesn't reflect the way Soto would play the hand if he were the aggressor on the river, and not being able to bet, say, three-quarters pot reduces Soto's expected value. Finally, and most importantly, when Berkey bets the river, he only allows himself to bet 50% of the pot or go all in. So when the pot is 935, he can bet around $470 or over 2500. That's it. Again, most players would at least consider betting a size in between those two numbers if they wanted to bet. So it's strange that he doesn't include one. In his sim, when PioSolver shows that his massive shove is correct, all it's really saying is that it's better than checking or betting 50%, which are the only other options he gave it. I ran a variety of my own sims on this hand, aiming to address various problems with Berkey's setup. The Cliffs notes is that Berkey and Soto should both wind up with weaker ranges on the river than they do in Berkey's sim. Berkey should 3-bet some of his best hands on the flop, so those hands won't be in his range anymore when he just calls. And Soto can check-raise more of his strong hands on the turn when he's able to raise to a smaller size than just calling or going all-in. So those strong hands shouldn't be in his range anymore when he just calls on the turn. But for simplicity's sake, I'll only share one sim. I'll post screenshots of my work to my Twitter account, which is at thirdwalking. In this sim, I've largely kept Berkey's inputs the same, but added the ability for him to bet pot on the river, in addition to the 50% pot and all-in sizings he chose. Now, just adding this one option required too much computer power, so to make room, I removed the option for Soto to donk bet the flop, since Berkey's own sim showed that PioSolver almost never had Soto donk bet. With Berkey's range, the solver largely prefers the bet size I added, rather than the 50% or all-in sizes Berkey chose. So most of the time Berkey wants to bet, he should be betting pot or close to it. You can get more granular with sizings like 80% or 120% that are also useful, but pot mostly does the job. The solver does use the all-in sizing about 6% of the time though, and one of the hands with which it sometimes does so is Berkey's exact hand, Queen 10 with the Queen of Diamonds. When Berkey has the Queen of Diamonds in his hand, he prevents Soto from having Queen-10 of Diamonds exactly, which is his only combination of Queen-10 that's supposed to make it to the river. So Berkey having the Queen of Diamonds makes Soto's range weaker. Piosolver almost never has Berkey go all in with Queen-10 unless it contains a diamond. But the solver thinks Berkey can also use the pot sizing when he has Queen-10 with the Queen of Diamonds. Either sizing, pot or all in, is reasonable. Now, as the actual hand plays out and Berkey shoves, Soto calls with Jack-10, which PioSolver thinks should virtually never happen. Which leads to an interesting question. If you're Matt Berkey, and you have Matt Berkey's reputation, and you have Queen-10 with the Queen of Diamonds for a rivered straight on this board, which bet sizing should you choose if PioSolver says that betting pot and shoving are both good? 
Remember, these videos are supposed to be about exploitative play, and Berkey has a well-earned reputation for stacking off light, 10-7 of diamonds. So this is where he gets to say, look, I'm Matt Berkey. If my opponents thought I was tight, I probably wouldn't shove here. But since I look a little crazy, I can go all in a little bit light, knowing that my opponents will often call off even lighter, which Soto does. If anything, this hand, properly explained, would be a perfect example of why being Matt Berkey can let you do fun, exploitative things. But Berkey doesn't say any of that, because the way he set up the solver prevents us from considering options like smaller river bets, even though they seem pretty obvious and are, in fact, better sizes with most of Berkey's range. It would actually be useful to see a video on how to use a crazy image to get paid when you make thin overbets. Instead, Berkey just makes it seem like he's playing optimally. But he's omitted key pieces from the puzzle, and he doesn't say anything about exploitative considerations that might lead him to shove rather than bet smaller. My guess is that Berkey just made some honest mistakes with the solver here, and to be fair, it's a tough program with lots of nooks and crannies I haven't really explored either. But Berkey doesn't even seem to understand the basics very well. On the river, for example, Soto starts with a check, which is standard because he checked on the turn and Berkey bet in position. Berkey says, even when given two options for bet sizes on the river, the solver exclusively checks all 14 combinations of hands that have gotten this far." End quote. An experienced user of the program probably wouldn't say this. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, PioSolver always checks because it's built to always check if a player is out of position and didn't have the initiative on the previous street unless the user specifically inputs the option of donk betting. The bet options Berkey gave Soto on the river aren't relevant when Berkey is the aggressor on the turn. This is basic PioSolver stuff. While it's only human to play imperfectly, I do question the value of seeing a hand like this presented as a training video. Soto's turn play is incorrect, and Berkey's river bet is presented as being the only good option despite not even being the most obvious one. And absent exploitative considerations that Berkey doesn't really discuss, Soto's river call is a big mistake. It's not a well-played hand, and Berkey's misuse of PioSolver doesn't clarify things. So where's the value in a video like this? How does it help Solve for Y subscribers to see all these mistakes and these flimsy explanations? Let's think about Solve for Y's output from the perspective of a recreational player who's trying to get better. Maybe Solver Y introduces inexperienced players to concepts and tools like PioSolver that are new to them and helps awaken them to new ideas they can then run with. But a poker concept that's just jostling in your head isn't that useful. Live poker is full of players throwing around poker terms in conversation when it's clear from their play that they don't know how to apply them. Some of the mistakes we see in these videos, like raising to four big blinds in the hijack with ace-nine offsuit without a clear exploitative reason for doing so, are small mistakes that many recreational players make. Solve for Why, as a poker training site, should coach viewers to correct mistakes like this, not amplify them. But if someone is already raising big with ace-nine off in this situation, and they're looking to Berkey for guidance, the result is probably that they'll just continue making the mistake, which isn't good, but at least doesn't make them worse. But some of the mistakes we see Berkey make, like 4-betting 10-7 suited preflop and then blasting off with a huge flop bet and a turnover bet shove into a strong range, are, in my experience, types of mistakes that most recreational players are not already making. I don't see recreational players making tons of massive overbet bluffs. Many of them also aren't losing 500 big blind pots calling off with king-queen on a queen 10 5 8 board. So imagine you're a recreational player. You play a couple nights a week. You're losing a little bit of money, but it's nothing you can't handle, and poker in 2020 is hard. And then you encounter Solve for Why. You subscribe. Maybe you even pony up several thousand dollars to attend one of the academies. And then I'm guessing you don't learn not to raise ace-nine offsuit for four big blinds in the hijack. You probably don't learn about important leaks you might have, like c-betting too much, or calling too many opens, or playing too many hands from early position boring, unsexy problems that add up over time and that will be among the first things many good coaches will focus on. Instead, what you learn is to blast off for 300 big blinds with 10-7 when you flop a flush draw. You learn to call off for heaps with top pair against a strong range of much better made hands and very strong draws. 
You learn to call three bets with Ace-9 off. You learn to take weird lines against good players that open you up to losing piles of chips. None of what I've said so far is personal to me, really. I've never met Berkey or any Sulphur Y coaches, and I don't think anything I've said in this podcast proves that they're bad people or that they're dishonest. But this stuff costs money. These mistakes they're teaching cost money. And maybe I should shut up about it, because sometimes I'll be the guy who gets that money, and I want otherwise intelligent opponents getting confused and running hopeless bluffs against me. But when there's a company giving advice like this and charging players who only want to get better thousands of dollars, I feel like something like this podcast should be out there. Poker Out Loud does feature guests like Lichtenberger and Jesse Sylvia, who are clearly excellent players. And some of Sulphurwise coaches, like Hunt, do have something to offer. But its highest profile content comes from Berkey and other coaches who simply aren't playing or explaining accurately. Maybe I'm taking all this too seriously. Maybe, as a friend of mine recently speculated, many of the people paying thousands to attend Berkey's Academy are approaching it not primarily to get better at poker, but to participate in sort of a poker fantasy camp. They get to hang out in Sulphur Wise headquarters, which looks sort of like a hip barbershop, and play poker on video with RFID technology revealing their hole cards. So who am I to say? If you're not very good at poker and you want to think about it in a way you haven't before, maybe Sulphur Wise for you and maybe its slick-looking videos have some value as an entertainment product. If you want to improve, though, I'd look elsewhere. Thanks to Sam Wilmoth and Yale Greenfield for reading early drafts of this script. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at ThirdWalking, or reach me via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.